This is an ABC podcast. They came demanding greatness again. A posse of proud boys. We see that the Democrats and the Liberals are basically trying to steal the election through fraud. The survival of America depends upon our ability to elect Republicans at every level, starting with the midterms. It's election season in the United States with the midterm elections for Congress next week. Donald Trump's been on the campaign trail holding rallies to support his favoured candidates. US politics is volatile and about to get even more volatile, with the US midterm elections being held this week. At stake are all of the seats in the House of Representatives. 35 seats in the Senate, 36 state governorships, numerous city mayorships and 129 ballot measures, including laws on abortion in California, Kentucky, Michigan, Montana and Vermont. But many people in the US are suggesting that what's really at stake in these elections is democracy itself. Hello, I'm Annabelle Quince, and in this Rear Vision, the story of the Republican Party and its historical connections with the radical right in America. Donald Trump, with his followers of extreme right-wing supporters, was arguably one of the most divisive presidents in American history. But Trump is not the first US politician to appeal to the far right. The Republican Party has a long history of associating with right-wing radical groups. But not at its inception. The Republican Party, one of the oldest parties in the world, began in the 1800s as a party fighting against slavery and promoting economic and socially progressive reforms. Well, you're right. The Republican Party emerged in the 1850s as an opposition force to the expansion of slavery in Western states and territories. In addition to that, it was very progressive in terms of its economic policy. I'm David Korn, the Washington Bureau Chief of Mother Jones Magazine and author of American Psychosis, a historical investigation of how the Republican Party went crazy. It wanted to have government policies that would help low, middle-income Americans, meaning white guys, but basically in order to get jobs and to build up the infrastructure. It wanted to create education institutions, land-grant colleges. So it was all about what the government could do to create economic opportunity, which is a progressive notion, in addition to opposing the expansion of slavery. That was the heart of Lincoln's agenda. And after his assassination and for decades afterwards, there was a conflict within the party between people looking to steer it in a more progressive direction and those who were guiding it more to be the party of big business, particularly Northeastern business interests and financial interests. And it went back and forth. And in the early 1900s, Teddy Roosevelt was a progressive Republican who became president and had a tremendously progressive agenda. But then he was sort of beaten back by more conservative forces within the Republican Party. So as I said, it seesawed back and forth. The end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century was a boom time for corporate America. 
The Gilded Age period in American history was a time of extreme inequality. It was a time when then millionaires, there were no billionaires at that point, particularly heads of the new industrial corporations, the coal companies, the railroad companies, had outsized power over government pretty much at every level. My name is Nancy McLean, and I am a professor of history and public policy at Duke University and the author of Democracy in Chains, The Deep History of the Radical Rights Stealth Plan for America. It was a time in which workers had no legal right to organize for collective voice. So we had essentially rolling civil wars between capital and labor, and there was no federal right to regulation to do anything about this corporate power, to do anything about issues such as pollution, threats to consumers, etc. Every time a law would be passed to enact what the people wanted to see, the Supreme Court would strike it down. So it was a very, very dark time in many ways, although it was also a time filled with tremendous organizing of various groups, you know, whether it was working people or women or African Americans through the NAACP, which came into being in 1909. While these civic groups couldn't change US politics during the 1920s, the stock market crash of 1929 and the depression that followed did. But in the 1930s, in the pits of the Great Depression, there was organizing on such a scale that it ended up first leading to a landslide victory for Franklin Delano Roosevelt in 1932. And then his administration came in and sought to deal with the crisis with unemployment as high as a quarter to a third in many places, many local governments going bankrupt. They couldn't provide charity, the old form of dealing with poverty and social crisis. And so all of these things converged together along with a vast movement of workers to bring in a new model of government in the 1930s, what FDR called the New Deal. And that included such things as Social Security, as a legal right for workers to organize and for government to be able to regulate corporations in the common interests, including banks, including pollution, labor standards and such. And actually, it's very interesting because the political right at that time and the political right today referred to all of this as socialism. And many of the captains of industry were outraged. The Republican Party had held the presidency during the 1920s and the crash of 1929 and were thought to have mishandled the crisis. Then, as World War II raged across Europe, most Republicans opposed the United States' involvement. If you look in the mid-1900s, the party became associated with laissez-faire capitalism in Wall Street and was somewhat discredited by the 1929 crash. And then it became associated with isolationism and was discredited by the advent of World War II. So in the mid-40s, the Republican Party was seen to be wrong on the two big issues of the century up to that point in time, intervention overseas and the economy at home. And it was decimated. In Congress, it was down to, I don't know, 10, 12 senators and just a handful of members of the House of Representatives. But towards the end of World War II, the party hit upon a new formula for success. And the way was led by a guy named Richard Nixon. And it was red baiting. 
we must recognize communism for what it is. The only answer to communism is a massive offensive for freedom. It was claiming that there was a threat, an internal subversive threat within the United States that the Democrats were either party to or weak on. He was outdone in this category by a guy named Joe McCarthy, who came along in the late 40s, early 50s, and said that there was a giant plot to weaken the United States from within so it could be handed over to the Soviet Union. And that plot was being led by elites and members of the Truman administration, including the defense secretary, George C. Marshall. This was kind of like the QAnon of its day. It was a crazy conspiracy theory that was irrational. McCarthy was lying, lying, lying when he said he knew of 200-odd communists within the State Department. There was no such thing. There was no evidence of this. But yet, it struck a nerve, and it resonated with tens of millions of Americans. And the Republicans saw him winning elections and other Republicans winning elections by campaigning on this paranoia, basically exploiting and encouraging fear and extremism. And from that point on, the Republican Party had always, to some degree, it waxed, it waned, exploited and encouraged far-right fanaticism. And we see that straight up until today. In the 1950s and 60s, the Republican Party saw another opportunity to attract white voters in southern states who feared the integration of schools. The Supreme Court in the 1954 Brown versus the Board of Education decision unanimously ruled that racial segregation in public schools violated the Constitution. Barry Goldwater, who opposed the Brown decision, was selected as the Republican Party presidential candidate in 1964. The radical right of the late 1950s and early 1960s that set out to transform the Republican Party looked particularly to the South. And one of the reasons they chose Barry Goldwater was in good part because of his opposition to that Brown versus Board of Education decision and his opposition to the New Deal that he had been very vocal about beginning in the, the 1930s. And they were quite explicit, you know, and, and they said basically the Republican Party should stop being moderate, should stop trying to compete for the moderate voters of, you know, the Northeast and the Midwest and elsewhere, and instead should be anchored, and again, they put in the states of the old Confederacy. Barry Goldwater's campaign was supported by the John Birch Society, a conservative society founded in 1958 by wealthy businessmen. The interesting thing about the John Birch Society, which arose in the late 50s and early 60s, it was McCarthyism on steroids. These were people who believed the commies had infiltrated not just the U.S. government, but every educational institution, every college, high school PTAs, parent-teachers associations, newspapers, magazines, unions, and corporations. I mean, it was really crazy stuff, and it was started by a former businessman, a candy manufacturer, who believed all this. I mean, he actually even believed that Eisenhower was a communist agent. You know, they developed a membership of tens of thousands, maybe into the hundreds of thousands. And in the early 60s, Barry Goldwater, who was running for president, he ran for president in 1964, the senator who was leader of the conservative movement, wanted these birchers, as they were called, 
for his campaign to be volunteers, to be donors, to be foot soldiers for the Republican Party. And he and others kind of conspired to not drive the Birchers out of the Republican Party or out of the conservative movement because they wanted this force. And they really became, in some ways, the grassroots movement of the right-wing forces in the United States and that led through the 70s and into the 80s. You fast forward to the Tea Party in 2010 and 2011, you saw at that point in time business interests like the Koch brothers and the others funneling money into the Tea Party movement. So in the 50s and 60s, it was a couple business guys creating the John Birch Society. A few decades later, it was a bunch of business interests not creating the Tea Party movement, but basically institutionalizing it and taking advantage of it for their own agenda. So it's very telling that Barry Goldwater, it was a huge electoral defeat, but the the places where he won, besides his own home state of Arizona, were all deep south states that practiced extreme voter suppression. So he was basically winning on the vote of white, better off reactionaries. Barry Goldwater needed the Birchers to win the Republican Party nomination. But it drove him so far to the right that it made it very easy for Lyndon Johnson to win the election in 1964. But what happened was Barry Goldwater, for the first time, won a a lot of southern states that before that had been Democratic. And he led the Republican Party, which to a lot of black Americans was seen as the party of Lincoln. And it was Goldwater, some other Republicans, who said, you know what? Our conservatism, our libertarianism is the type of politics that Southerners will like because basically we say, get the federal government out of your life. And the Southerners didn't want the federal government coming in and implementing integration and opposing segregation. So they were very amenable to this form of Republican conservatism. And so Goldwater and others said, well, we should appeal to them on those grounds. And then when Nixon ran four years later, he created what you call the Southern strategy, which was to make a direct play for votes in the South from Americans who did not want to see segregation ended. Instead of now allying himself with the Birchers, he was allying himself with racists and white supremacists in the South and leading the Republican Party away from its roots in terms of advancing the rights of black people and into the hands of those who wanted to continue Jim Crow. The Southern strategy was also adopted by Ronald Reagan in his bid for the presidency in 1980. Ronald Reagan's victory in 1980, he kind of blessed that strategy by kicking off his campaign in Philadelphia, Mississippi, where three civil rights workers had been brutally murdered in 1964. And he was self-consciously appealing to what his campaign called the Wallace-inclined voters, talking about states' rights and such. In fact, his first major speech after getting the nomination was in Philadelphia, Mississippi, And he gave a speech at the county fair there and said that he was in favor of states' rights, which was the code term for segregationists. When they said states' rights, that meant keep the federal government out of our business and allow us to continue with segregationist laws. So he spoke directly 
to the racists and the white supremacists of the South picking up the Southern strategy that Nixon had forged 12 years earlier. And how does that alliance between President Reagan and the religious right come into existence? This happens at the same time. Throughout the 70s, and it was kind of the continuation of the Barry Goldwater movement in the 70s, there was a rise of what was called the New Right, very far-right organizations that raised a lot of money through a new fundraising mechanism that was called Direct Mail. And they basically spun off a religious component of that called the Religious Right, which was basically led by a group called the Moral Majority that itself was led by a guy named Jerry Falwell, who had you know opposed integration, and it was very, very far to the right, what today we'd call a Christian nationalist, believed the United States should be a Christian nation. And it came to prominence as a foe of homosexuals and gay rights. And Reagan totally embraced the religious right and this homophobic force, to the extent that this group, the moral majority, had people in leadership positions who were publicly saying that gay people could be executed under God's law, and Reagan would get out there and publicly proclaim the moral majority was a great force for good in the United States, and Jerry Falwell was a wonderful spiritual leader. He totally validated and supported and endorsed the moral majority and the entirety of the religious right. Reagan also had quite a bit of support from some very rich friends, as Darren Malloy, professor of history and author of Enemies of the State, the radical right in America from FDR to Trump, explains. In 1934, two very prominent American businessmen created an organisation called the American Liberty League, which was just fundamentally opposed to FDR and to the New Deal. And they tried to suggest that they were a kind of grassroots movement of ordinary Americans who were opposed to the interventionist federal government. But in reality, it was a classic example of what we now would call AstroTurf organization. And it was in some ways totally unsuccessful because the New Deal continued and we had the transformation of American politics we talked about earlier as a result of the, of the New Deal. But it laid the groundwork for how the radical rich would proceed in the years to follow. Again, if we jump forward to 1960, the John Birch Society was formed in 1958. A host of wealthy Americans, including the Koch's father, was involved in the formation of the John Birch Society. But they don't become really successful until the kind of dissolution of the liberal consensus in the post-1970s period. In the aftermath of Vietnam War, Watergate, the oil crisis of the 70s, they're funding quietly various think tanks, the Heritage Foundation, the Cato Institute, and all this kind of thing. And they eventually latch on to Reagan as a candidate. And it's Reagan who kind of leads them out of the political wilderness and makes conservative republicanism electable in ways that hadn't been, you know, going back until the 1920s. And then the further radicalization of the Republican Party takes place during the 1990s, I think, led by Newt Gingrich. Newt Gingrich got elected in the late 80s, and he came to Washington at the same time a radio talk show host named Rush Limbaugh was coming into prominence. And the two of them had the similar strategies, which was to engage in extremist rhetoric to demonize Democrats and liberals, progressives, and everybody they saw on the other side. And he even put out a list of words 
that he wanted other Republicans to use when describing Democrats. Traitor, treasonous, betrayal, radical, bizarre, anti-children, anti-family. It was a whole new brand of thuggish politics that he used to really change the way the political debate worked in the United States. And Rush Limbaugh was basically preaching from the same handbook. And the two of them put the Republican Party on a path to just extremism in terms of rhetoric and in terms of who they ended up supporting. They ended up being close to various right-wing militia groups. They embraced Christian fundamentalists. And most importantly, conspiracy theory about the Clintons. They embraced theories that the Clintons had killed Hillary and Bill. Bill Clinton was president at this point, had killed dozens of people on their way to power. It was complete nuttiness. It's what you see today with Donald Trump embracing QAnon, but the Republican Party in the 90s started officially embracing some of the nutty paranoia out in the open that in years past it had encouraged, you know, in a more subtle manner. As we get into the 2000s, you mentioned before about the emergence of the Tea Party. And in essence, is this strategy of appealing to more extremist groups, supporting more extremist candidates, it's like a sort of ever-growing snowball so that as each decade goes on, the sort of Republican Party, in a sense, embraces this kind of strategy even more? Well, the way I see it is, so you have Newt Gingrich and what he was doing in the 90s. And then in 2008, John McCain selects Sarah Palin to be his running mate. And she starts getting out there and calling Barack Obama a pal of terrorists and claiming that he wants to impose a socialist tyranny on the United States. She's playing with this new conspiracy theory called birtherism which said that Barack Obama was a secret Muslim born in Kenya. And she's advocating all these things and promoting these ideas. And at her rallies, there are people who are screaming, kill Obama. He's a commie. He's a terrorist. And that was pretty new to American politics. While there always were extremists, to have this be a feature of presidential campaign rallies was something new and different. I knew John McCain, and I liked him in a lot of ways, but his campaign encouraged and exploited this to a certain extent, and they allowed Sarah Palin to make these statements. It was playing to the extremist space. The way it looks to me is that each iteration of this, they're throwing out red meat, and the red meat is getting redder and redder. And so even though John McCain and Sarah Palin lose to Barack Obama, 2009 and 2010, you have the rise of the Tea Party, which is the same thing. They're accusing Barack Obama, literally, of being a secret socialist Muslim who was born in Kenya, who has a secret plan to destroy the American economy so he can impose a totalitarian dictatorship and rule as emperor. I mean, this is literally what these people are saying. The Republican Party was working hand in glove with these voices of paranoid and conspiratorial extremism. 
And just in the last few days, we've seen that attack on Nancy Pelosi's husband in their house in San Francisco. And I mean, is that part of that too, that when you start to embrace these conspiracy theories, if people do believe them, it does lead to a politics that is much more violent? Indeed. We see the Proud Boys being egged on, these white nationalists who like to engage in street fighting. They were basically egged on and supported by Donald Trump during the 2020 campaign. His promise to pardon January 6th rioters can only be seen as encouraging other people who might want to engage in violence. And then we have this horrific attack on Nancy Pelosi's husband. The atmosphere here is one of increasing danger and violence. Alongside the radical right, there are other voices influencing the Republican Party, the radical rich, individuals like Charles Koch, and they have a very different agenda. Charles and David Koch own the second biggest privately owned company in the US. The Koch network is responsible for one in four dollars of all dark money. We could describe what they want is a smaller government as possible, a freer market as possible, as low taxation as possible, as few regulations as possible, and a smaller government bureaucracy as possible. That's been the fundamental guiding principles you can see within the radical right, as opposed to, say, the racist right, but for the radical right, which ties them together from the American Liberty League in the 1930s through the opposition to the liberalism of the Kennedy and Johnson administrations, onto Ronald Reagan, onto the Tea Party, and onto the administration of Donald Trump. If you remember, Trump's cabinet was the wealthiest in American history. It was composed of rich business people who were hedge fund managers and so on. That's what they wanted out of it. So amidst all of the distraction of the, should we say, idiosyncrasies of the Trump's personality and his governing style, behind the scenes, that's what's going on. While the radical rich didn't initially support Trump's nomination for the presidency, many of the people in his administration were closely connected with them. The donor network, they didn't support Donald Trump, but Mike Pence is vice president, totally out of the Koch network. Mike Pompeo, who became secretary of state later, Mark Short, you know, we could go through a whole list, but many of those people came from the apparatus and they got many of the things those donors want like a a Federalist Society Supreme Court majority that will be as reactionary as the turn of the century Supreme Court in the turn of the 20th century that we were talking about, like the huge tax bill, you know, vast deregulation, etc. So they got a lot of what they wanted, and now it seems that they are supporting the candidates for Congress and Senate and state legislatures who supported Trump. And all this brings us to the U.S. midterm elections being held this week. This is not a normal midterm election. There are over 300 Republican candidates who are running based on the big lie that the election was stolen from Donald Trump. And they have already talked, many of them, about how they would change the way elections are run and the way that the votes are counted. So essentially, they're talking about rigging the election rules if they get in. And these are, many of them, candidates for secretary of state positions. So they would 
be overseeing the elections in places like Nevada, Arizona, and many other states that are contested swing states. I don't think we're going to have an honest, fair election in 2024 if Republicans of this ilk get enough seats in 2022. What's really frightening here, it's like they won't even say they would accept the outcome of an election they lost. They will not accept that as legitimate. And that is, now we're into authoritarian territory when you have candidates like that. And that's true of a Senate candidate in my own state. When we looked at the 2020 election, it was regarded as the most secure in American history by those who ran that election. But what we've also seen in reaction to that is a clear attempt to undermine that position, voter suppression, most obvious way to simply to ignore the, the will of the American people and overturn the results. And yet, if you look at, for example, opinion polls, the number one issue is not the health of American democracy. It's the economy. And that's what likely will motivate most people in November and maybe 2024. For all those years, Jimmy Carter and those election monitors, you know, went off to other countries to oversee their elections. And I feel like, you know, we desperately need election monitors from other, you know, functional democracies to now come and oversee our elections because some very alarming things are happening. Nancy McLean, Professor of History and Public Policy at Duke University. My other guests, Darren Malloy, Professor of History at the Wolford Laurier University, and David Korn, the Washington Bureau Chief of Mother Jones magazine. The sound engineer is Anne-Marie de Betancourt. I'm Annabelle Quince, and this is Rear Vision. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.